Hi, I'm Kimberly Jenkins, host of a new podcast about rebels in the fashion industry, like La Roach. I'm still going into spaces where no one who looked like me has ever been before. And I'm taking the hinge, I'm taking the door with me. On The Invisible Seam, we open up the archive of American fashion and celebrate its Black contributions. The Invisible Seam is available now from Tommy Hilfiger's People's Place program and the Fashion and Race Database. Hey, this is Andrew Thien, podcast editor and host of Beat Check with You Oregonian. Here's episode two of the five-part series, Public Plea, from students, alums, and journalists at the University of Oregon. It's a series about young men who were convicted of Measure 11 crimes and what to do with them. Check out our feed to see the previous episodes or listen to my interview with those. What if your life hinged on decisions you made as a teenager? The justice system is in place to prosecute criminal offenses. The question is, how just is just? Welcome back to Public Plea. I'm Ed Madison. Evidence linking Ricky Gators to a 2017 fatal shooting was inconclusive. But rather than risk the outcome of a trial, Ricky did what 95% of defendants do in criminal cases. He accepted a DA's offer to plead guilty to lesser crimes. However, taking a plea deal isn't necessarily an admission of guilt. Ricky's attorney, Ginger Mooney, explains. When you are charged with a Measure 11 crime, you're facing a significant amount of time. And a lot of people would opt to take a plea deal instead of face the mandatory minimum sentence. So instead of pleading to a Measure 11 crime, they would plead to a crime that isn't a Measure 11 um, to avoid the mandatory sentence, not because they're guilty or innocent, but because they're so fearful of being found guilty at trial and facing this huge sentence. 36 months into his 10-year sentence, Ricky Gators resides at the Oregon Youth Authority's Rogue Valley Juvenile Correction Facility. OIA has worked diligently to make youth corrections look and feel less like prison, but a fact remains. Ricky isn't free to leave and may not be going home anytime soon. A high fence surrounds the compound. Double sets of security doors seal the entrances. Cinder block line corridors contain interior activities. There's a central open air courtyard that you can't access without an escort. Life is much better than when he began his sentence. Ricky will celebrate his 21st birthday, much like his 18th, incarcerated. I was sitting in the cell my whole 18th birthday, just like chilling. I'm like, what? This is my life. I was sad. I couldn't really break a tear, but I'm like sad, like, dang. You know, it's like, I can't get mad at the real. I gotta get mad at myself for being in this. An occasional FaceTime call with his mom, Shantia, breaks the monotony of time inside. Shantia treats Ricky with news. The family will visit him in a few days to celebrate him turning 21. You see, I got wrinkles in my forehead. <laughs> You're still dating. Uh, I cannot wait to Saturday. You're going to have the birthday of a lifetime. I think about 
about it, I'd be like, dang, if I was out for my 21st birthday, that'd be the craziest stuff ever. I know. I'd take you to the zoo. I ain't mom, mom, mom. I'm just playing. You know what, though? Are we going to take pictures when we come? No, I can go without my pictures, mom. I know. Visitations are few and far between, especially during the height of the global COVID-19 pandemic. And the drive from Portland, Oregon to the Grants Pass facility is seven hours round trip. As the allotted time for their phone call ends, Shantia shares some snapshots from her phone with our production crew. This is our family picture. Isn't this sad? It's really sad when family picture has to be a screenshot, you know? There's emotion every time it's time to say goodbye. Just because he's so far away, he's not with me, and we're really close knit. And so for that one person to be gone, it's like we've been broken ever since. The long-awaited weekend arrives. The family makes the trek the night before and books a motel near the facility to make the most of their Saturday visit. Masked up, they approach the entryway and follow safety protocols. Take your tamp, is that okay? Yeah. My heart is going boom, 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 boom. Hi, happy birthday. Hey, Hi. <laughs> Hi, you're 21. I know. A touching moment between a mother and her son is tough to criticize, but many victims' rights advocates view minimum sentencing laws by a different standard. I can't believe that people want criminals to get out of jail early. I don't care how young they are. At 15, you know wrong from right. You know it's wrong. Portland resident Renita Sutton lost her son to a drive-by shooter in 1998. Today, she works to support other victims' families to begin to heal. I, I don't understand that armed robbery. Can you imagine someone coming up to you and robbing you with a gun, how horrible that would be? You don't just get up and say, oh, today I'm going to go and rob somebody. There's nothing wrong with it. You don't sit around and wait for the police. You run because you know it's wrong. You know it's wrong, but you do it anyway. So why should they be given special treatment when they knew it was wrong? I, I just, I don't understand that. I mean, listening to what she's saying about her son and his 21st birthday. <laughs> He didn't care about his birthday. He didn't care about his family. He didn't care about himself when he did whatever he, it was he did. That was more important to him than his family, than his freedom. So why should people work to try to get him out? He did a horrible thing, and he should pay the price for that horrible thing. He shouldn't be given special treatment because of his age. That, that's just ridiculous to me. I think we have to stop making excuses for people who choose to do bad things. I mean, we keep making up these excuses and they start believing these excuses. You know, I, oh, this is what happened to me. This is why this happened to me. Instead of just saying, I made the choice to do this. Judge me all you want, but you don't know a person. You probably see a little news clip. You probably seen, heard some rumors or anything, some, you know. But keep judging me because that's not who I am. I, I like being judged because it, it makes me a stronger person.
you know, whether like, okay, I get judged and sometimes I'll be like, dang, that's mean. But what am I going to do? Like, am I going to just dwell on it or am I going to be like, okay, I use that as confidence, motivation, you know, to make me a better person in life. I can't do it if I dwell on it. These are kids we're talking about. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's the longer that you keep, I feel like the longer you keep a kid incarcerated, you have to give them a chance to rehabilitate themselves and you have to give them a chance at life, a second chance. You don't just throw them away, you know? And I feel like for most of the young men, I'm speaking for young men because that's where my son is in a facility with men. The ones that I've met have been doing great things. You know what I mean? They make mistakes as kids and then they figure it out. But it's like, why couldn't they figure it out out here? Why couldn't there be like certain programs to where they can go to and figure it out? Why do they have to be incarcerated and give the, why do you have to give them such big numbers? You know what I mean? Like for instance, Ricky, they gave him 10 years. You, what kid can process that? You know what I mean? 10 years, that's harsh. Like my whole heart was left in that courtroom when they gave my son 10 years. They never talk about the previous crimes. And it's, it's, parents always act like it's, this is the first crime, this is when it matters. Usually they have a history of crimes. And I understand she's a mother who's worked hard and her child just went the wrong way. You know, like I said, sometimes you, you can do all you can, but they make bad choices. But she has to remember he has a victim out there, or victims. I don't want this for nobody in their life, getting locked up. But once that time come, don't get mad at that person for saying that same thing that you said to somebody else. Not just somebody else, a kid. I'm a kid at the time. I don't care if I'm a kid or not. Like, that should not be said to anybody. Like, you get what you deserve. Everybody's human, everybody makes mistakes, no matter if, Whatever they did was wrong, you know? I let everybody make mistakes. They just make mistakes in a different way. By all accounts, Ricky is working hard while inside to turn his life around. He's finished high school and started college courses. I need to, like, find an outlet and try to, like, work my way out of here. Work my way to a successful life that I've been taught by teachers, staff, you know, Staff members talk to me all the time, like, you know, you really want to be doing this for your life? No, you don't. I'm so proud. So he graduated. That's something that he should be really proud of. He's in college now. He just told me that he did pretty good on a test. He's really hard on himself when it comes to his assignments and grades and things. He told me he missed three out of 20 and he was beating himself up a little bit, but he's doing good and he's, He's into it, and that's the main thing. It's like he's doing everything that he can to line his life up so that when he comes home, it's going to be hard, but it won't be as hard. Ricky also counsels younger inmates about the danger of gang affiliations and avoiding a continued life of crime. If the point of incarceration is rehabilitation, at what point has one sufficiently paid their debt to society, especially when their transgressions occurred when they were a minor? I don't believe most people can be rehabilitated when they are people that commit type, those types of crimes. Prison, I think, is a little, it, it's not a deterrent 
you go in and you're treated better than most of the time than you are on the street. Renita's hardline approach stems from a wound that may never heal. Her younger son, Christopher, was a law-abiding citizen, killed just two weeks before he was to start college. They were sitting in a car waiting and someone just rode up on a bike and started shooting into the car. And my son was killed. Um, they caught this person and he was a gang member. He said um, he confessed to killing my son. He said, I did not know him. I thought the car belonged to someone else. I guess some other gang member that had killed his cousin. I said I wouldn't cry, <laughs> but that's what happened. So it's been hard. No one should have to go through that. But even people who were involved, let's say, in armed robberies, how it affects them, you know, how it, it takes away their sense of safety. Excuse me. <clears throat> Gotta take a deep breath. <laughs> Kimberly Dixon is a Portland resident who sees a middle ground. She works as a community advocate and is no stranger to family loss. I say that um, it's a yes and. It's a yes and. Um, so my lens encompasses having lost a son to violence as well as having a brother who has been incarcerated for 24 and a half years. I do that time with him. My family does that time with him. Um, so when we think of, is there a hard line? We have, we as human beings are naturally complex. When you look at where opportunity, impact, um, environment, um, access, all of those various intersections, we have huge variables, particularly as people of color. We have different barriers that are innately in place because we are on land that was stolen from a people. We are within a government that literally had government sanctioned human bondage that we call slavery. And I read in an article that phrase, government sanctioned human bondage. I said, yeah, that's it. That's it. That's what that is. Because slavery has just kind of washed over us. Black History Month, we just, it's just kind of a wash. But when you pause and really understand what we have done, we have to own that. We have to understand that's part of our history. And then, so if you come from that lens and say, this is what we've done, now how do we reverse engineer what we've done? Does that mean that we don't have punitive? Absolutely, we still have punitive actions that have to happen. We still have safety that has to happen in community. We have to regulate and, have, um, and not have chaos, absolutely. But we also have to look at the complexity of a human being, of families, uh, uh, who might look different than yours in terms of their makeup, and we have to look at what they did or did not have access to. We're not all starting at the same starting line. We're not all, we might be running the same race, but there, our track looks completely different.
Many conservatives might view Kimberly's argument as playing the race card. Many whites argue that slavery ended 400 years ago and ask why they should be blamed for the sins of their forefathers. Should present-day blacks who commit crimes get a pass because of the residual effects of slavery? We're 400 years away from slavery or government-sanctioned human bondage, but we haven't stopped the practices and we haven't ceased with the implicit biases that are associated with how dominant cultures still views people of color. Because we were never viewed as an asset in terms of, wow, we were never viewed as smart. Oh, you're so articulate. As if there's a question mark next to that, not a celebration. In fact, people of color were never celebrated used, abused, but not celebrated. So that's the 400 year history as well that people don't talk about. What's easier to talk about and comprehend are the circumstances that led to the tough on crime movement. I don't go along with people that say that law and order is a code word for racism. I believe that what we have to have is the restoration of law and order for all America. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. There's nothing wrong with law and order. There's law and order, and you shouldn't be ashamed of it. In 94, which was when Measure 11 was implemented, um, you also had a, a national kind of anti-crime uh, anti movement from the federal to the state levels. Tara Harrell is an Oregon-based defense attorney. And we also had, really importantly, uh, we had this era that began in the early 90s and was really powerful at 94, with the, the era of the super predator. I think it, John DiGiulio was this professor who coined this term super predator when referring to juveniles. Really, who he was referring to were black youth and specifically young black males. And in this period of the super predator that took off in the media um, and it took off across college campuses and, and bled its way into governments, administrative and implementation of legislation, there were a series, a spate of, of laws that came down the pike and treatment really in the courts individually and then kind of broadly that led to incarcerating youth of color in particular um, at much higher rates for much higher sentences. And it whipped up a lot of fear. So at the time of Measure 11, there was tremendous fear about crime. There were national stories and mythologies uh, that were trickling down to the states around who was committing crime, um, how extremely dangerous they were in a kind of like an argument that it was some kind of inherent predisposition for crime that certain populations had in this country, namely youth of color and male youth of color in particular. Back then, the idea was is that the criminal justice system needed to get tougher. It needed to have uh, more severe sentences, re removing things that they considered kind of cushy or, or coddling and, and kind of things. Mark Lehman is a criminologist at Portland State University. Measure 11 was one of the um, most 
um, significant of the reforms that came out of Oregon and honestly nationally. One of the things that was the most unique about that is that it, uh, anybody who was 15 or older, when they were charged with the crime, and that's an important part about Measure 11 because the crime could have been committed even before then. They could have been as young as 11 or, or 12. Um, but if they weren't ultimately charged until they were at least 15 years of age, um, they, if they were charged with one of 27 offenses, um, felony offenses, um, which is, covers a large range of offenses, some offenses that are not all that um, severe or significant if we, if we really look at them, um, that would automatically refer this youth to adult court. And there is a big difference between juvenile court and adult court because the juvenile court involves um, individuals who when you're in that juvenile court, if you're found guilty, um, you have a juvenile conviction. And when you're ultimately released from prison and you're an adult, um, that um, conviction is sealed and you don't have to carry that felony conviction with you for the rest of your life. But if you're convicted in adult court, even if you're a juvenile when you're convicted, that carries with you for the rest of your life, that felony conviction. So also very long mandatory sentences, which was another um, uh, component of it and the juveniles were charged with very long mandatory sentences with no possibility for early release or early parole. What that resulted in was a significant uptick in individuals, um, juveniles going to, to, uh, to prison, a significant uptick in them being convicted of adult um, felony convictions and having mandatory sentences where there really wasn't any incentive once you were there to do anything that might get your sentence really reduced. Or, and so in all, you put all those together and it was a pretty um, severe and significant um, uh, sanction uh, put upon youth in Oregon. Um, and that was the intent of the law at the time. Our issue in 1994 was the juvenile justice system that was Swiss cheese. It's full of holes. Kevin Mannix was the architect of Measure 11. I wrote Measure 11 with an intention of establishing a floor, a mandatory minimum uh, sentence for the most violent crimes. We put it on the ballot and the voters agreed with it. Some states were doing three strikes and you're out. We said no, it could be one strike, it could be your 10th strike, but the crime will define the time. It wasn't even three strikes and you're out. It was one strike and you're out. Aliza Kaplan is a law professor and director of the Criminal Justice Reform Clinic at Lewis and Clark College in Portland. And no matter um, what your history was, what your background was, what your age was, right, you could be um, sentenced under these really, really harsh mandatory minimum laws um, and imprisoned. And this especially affected youth in Oregon. And like in every state, youth of color were targeted and are still targeted um, or are still in prison today. We've recently changed the laws, but it still affects a lot of people on a, on a regular basis. Suddenly you have this overlay, this absolutely mandatory, unmovable uh, sentence. Lisa Ludwig is a Portland-based defense attorney. If you get convicted of robbery in the second degree, you get 70 months in prison, period, with no early release, no possibility of parole, no option of probation, nothing. Um, and that can be for a first offender. And so you, you know, I've represented 15-year-old kids who were charged with robbery in the, in the second degree, being part of a group of people who took property away from somebody by force. Um, in one, one case I'm thinking of, 
There were three brothers. My client was the youngest of the three brothers. Uh, he participated with his two older brothers in a robbery that, where they took property from another man. Um, and he, you know, the, the offer was unthinkable. And we went to trial, and then he got the unthinkable 70-month sentence, a 15-year-old. Um, he got the same sentence as his like 17 and 19 year old brothers too. Um, and so it puts all the power in the hands of an individual prosecutor. And you know they, they make those decisions in consultation with their office. They call it staffing the case. And they uh, have had what they, at least in Multnomah County, call a measure 11 committee where they um, claim that they discuss the cases in order to achieve some sort of consistency among all the prosecutors in the way that they handle particular cases. In any case, um, it's a fig leaf. Sometimes I think it's an excuse for a prosecutor to make the offer that they choose to make. Um, maybe I think that most of the time. Um, but it was it's investing this enormous amount of discretion in the hands of sometimes a 27-year-old um, who has a law degree but very little life experience, um, no um, no, I mean, there's no requirement that you have a, any kind of background in criminology or sociology when you become a prosecutor. Um, it's simply, you know, mostly what you can, what you can get. Um, and this all takes place in this kind of boiler room, this competitive environment among prosecutors where, you know, they consider winning a trial a win, but they also consider getting a conviction a win. And so, um, and they consider getting, you know, a harsh sentence a win. Um, and that's encouraged. And so, you know, you see these people who seek measure 11 sentences and really harsh punishments for total strangers just because they can, not because it's justice, not because it's appropriate, not because it rehabilitates the person, but just because they have a lot of power um, and they can. That is completely false. I've never, not in Oregon, I don't know about other places. Former district attorney in Clackamas and Multnomah County, John Foote prosecuted criminal cases for more than 30 years in Oregon and strongly objects. I used to tell people I will never do a performance measurement of our office on how you know, our conviction rate. That's not the point. Our point is justice. If you decide in a case that you have questions about the person's guilt, and I've done this, I'll dismiss the case because that's my job. So, no. And I didn't want people afraid to try a hard case they might lose. So I would never, I don't know what our conviction rates were. I never asked, I didn't want, I told them, that's not our measurement. So uh, there are a lot, you know, it's a time when there's a lot of hyped up rhetoric about this because there's so much money and ideology behind this. But we didn't suddenly grow horns. We're the same people we've always been. and. Uh, there is a lot of misunderstanding and misrepresentation about what our jobs are and how we see our jobs. Why should you have three strikes to commit armed robbery? Why should you do it three times? Or murder someone three times? Or rape someone three times? It's ridiculous. You know, the first time you knew it was wrong. Why should you be given two more choices to make the same choice? I don't call it a mistake because they're not mistakes. They're choices and they commit them on purpose. So I don't, why give them three times to do the same thing? Former Clatsop County District Attorney Joshua Marquise has taken a strong stance against attempts to end mandatory minimum sentencing. 
one of the great myths about Measure 11 is it's racist. It's the exact opposite. Measure 11 is colorblind. It doesn't care what color you are. It cares what the crime you were committed. Statistically, there's no question that prior to Measure 11, a greater proportion of black and Hispanic uh, young men, because almost all violent crime is committed by 18 to 25-year-old men. Um, in any event, a dis w very greatly disparate number of those sentenced to prison for those crimes were people of color. After Measure 11, that number got cut in half. Well, have they seen Measure 11 enacted? I would, I would, I would disagree that Measure 11 is colorblind. I would look at the, uh, the data would, I'm sure, show you the preponderance of the types of crimes, the folks who have committed those crimes, and the category that folks fall under who have committed said crimes that fall under Measure 11. And I would see, I think, I would think we would see a very strong leaning towards um, people of color, specifically men of color, specifically men under the age of 30, if not under the age of 25. Well, it, it, it is very troubling, but the question is, why? Is that because the police are going out and arresting people and prosecutors are punishing black people more than uh, white people? No, I don't think so. I mean, could it happen? Yes, it could happen. But you got to understand how crime gets reported. Numerically, misdemeanor crimes are twice as common as felonies. And almost all of them are generated by some sort of initial police contact, traffic stops, whatever. That's one kind of crime, especially serious crime. They're generated by a complaint by a citizen, not the police. So why is that happening? Well, those you got to ask hard questions. Are there different crime rates among different groups? And that obviously gets into history and all sorts of other things. But it's not people being persecuted. What, now, what's the solution? Is the solution we give one group more lenient sentences based on their race? That's wrong. That would be racism, no matter which group it was. Um, so I think it's a much more complicated question. Part of the problem is the baseline in America is, yes, people of color are convicted more often. The, the salient question is, were they convicted at a disproportionate greater rate under Measure 11 or before Measure 11? Because of all this talk about reform and progress, let's be very clear about what the opponent, proponents of so-called reform want. They don't want a new system. They want the old system. They want to roll the clock back to 1960-1970, which was unfettered discretion to a judge. Frankly, you know, again, paper sentences that didn't mean what they said, um, and, and all the problems that come with that. I've never been a Republican. This is a one-party state when it comes to the laws. And there is no debate about ideas. And most of the judges, in fact, probably all the judges who were in on the bench in Oregon were, were appointed by Democrats. And they, they tend to be more lenient. And what they say about judicial discretion means they want them to go down. And that's the very thing that created Measure 11 because politicians weren't listening to victims. And I believe that's going to happen again once they repeal Measure 11. It may take time, 
But I saw it happen once, I believe it'll happen again. You're already seeing it on Juvenile Measure 11 with some of these cases around the state where the victims are just devastated by the fact that this person is never going to be held accountable. From the outside, particularly from the outside viewed as a member of the family of the defendant, the defendant appears as a scared young person, um, maybe even shackled, although not often, but wearing a you know jail suit. Very undangerous. And, and of course, everybody has a mother and a father and a story and loved a puppy or something. We don't, con I mean, that is part of the sentence. But the other part, which never shows itself in the courtroom, which is a very antiseptic place, is the crime itself, the reason why we're there. People like Josh Marquis, John Foote, who's just left Clackamas County, um, you know, they're these old school warriors um, who think they're on the side of justice. Um, and I think they've been, I don't know, I think they've been sold a bill of goods. I think they, they think they were doing the right thing and I think that they will be shown to be on the wrong side of history, every single one of them. Despite opposition from prosecutors and victims' rights advocates, Oregon legislators repealed mandatory minimum sentencing for juveniles in 2019. While some individuals ineligible to benefit from the reforms seek a pardon from the governor, Ricky elected to pursue post-conviction relief. In simple terms, he's petitioning to have his plea bargain deal nullified. In the next edition of Public Plea, we look at school disciplinary practices and their role in perpetuating what is often called the school-to-prison pipeline. We know from research that that school-to-prison pipeline is a very real thing. I pretty quickly realized that the school-to-prison pipeline was very obvious. Um, and in my role as a teacher, I was required essentially to perpetuate it and perpetuate that harm. And do certain hip-hop artists bear some of the blame? You look at television, like these hip-hop shows, and they show black women as such a, as such a horrible way. I think that just goes back to the question, does art imitate life or vice versa? I, I mean, my kids have heard all of that music, but it doesn't, in, you know, incline them to be violent. All coming up in the next edition of Public Plea. Thanks for listening to Public Plea. This program was independently produced by alumni and current students at the University of Oregon School of Journalism and Communication in partnership with Oregon Public Broadcasting, The Oregonian, and Willamette Week. The views and opinions expressed by our interview subjects are their own and in no way reflect those of the University of Oregon, our partners, or their employees. For more information about this project, go to publicplea.net. I'm Ed Madison. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with You Oregonian. We'll be back in a few days with Episode 3 of Public Plea, the five-part series from the team of journalists at the University of Oregon.